Hey y'all, it's Danny Haifong here. Let me know how I sound. Uh, I think I forgot to actually plug in my ethernet cord. So let me know how my connection is as I go through this stream. Ooh, hold on one second. Sorry, there was a little bit of an echo there. So anyway, welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Danny Haifong here. Um, you... I hope you are watching on the left lens and that you're subscribing on the YouTube channel. If you're on my Twitter or my Facebook, please do go there and subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the like, help boost all of the videos, but especially this one. I'm coming on uh, for about an hour today just to make a few comments about some recent developments. I, I actually have an article that I just submitted regarding the squad's latest, what I call a spectacle, but a protest at the Capitol building, which great journalists, uh, great journalists like Chuck Modi and Max Blumenthal have been covering on the ground. But before I get to that, I just want to let folks come in. Uh, for those subscribers to my Patreon, I've tried to guide them um, from my page onto this YouTube uh, stream. So I hope that they make themselves known. I'll try to get to comments and questions for anyone who has them. But I will continue to let people come in the stream. For those on Twitter, I see many of those who are viewing this on Twitter. Please go to the YouTube channel, The Left Lens. You can find that in my latest tweet. And subscribe, hit the like button, and join from there. So I only have about an hour, maybe a little bit less. So I will start commenting in a bit on some of these issues. Hello, hello. LME, who is a subscriber. Thank you. Thank you for coming. This is an impromptu live stream. I wanted to comment on a few developments and provide my analysis for one, the eviction moratorium that has expired as of July 31st or the end of July 31st and into August. And I also wanted to um, comment on the New York Attorney General's Office. Attorney General's Office, they just released a report. Sorry for the sirens. This is New York City. There are sirens all the time. But the New York Attorney General's Office just came out with a report on Andrew Cuomo. And I wanted to just comment on that because Andrew Cuomo's reign of terror, whether it's in the workplace or in society, is one that the Democratic Party and much of the left have ignored or has ignored, or even worse, uh, they have lionized Andrew Cuomo to the point where there is an entire base of so-called liberals who will do anything to defend him. So in any event... Uh, thanks so much for coming to the stream. Again, this is Danny Haifong. You are listening to a live stream from the Left Lens YouTube channel. For all those on Twitter and on Facebook, please do join on YouTube where I will be able to better uh, track your comments and your questions. So, yes, Ethernet is indeed the best to someone who is joining today. I... I'm not on that. So if my connection is at all shaky, uh, apologies, forgot to connect it. And I, I really don't want to interrupt the stream. 
So in any event, okay, first things first, uh, Andrew Cuomo. Well, what is there to say about Andrew Cuomo right now? The New York Attorney Attorney's General Office just came out with a breaking report, and I will read from some of the findings of this report. It's pretty damning. It just demonstrates how the Democratic Party is led by really corporate thugs, corporate bosses. That is what Andrew Cuomo is. He receives an enormous amount of money from the real estate industry, from the so-called healthcare industry. He is a managerial arm of the corporation, of the capitalist class, and he is being exposed for really the scum that he is because when you come out of that kind of first that kind of family, but also that class, it's only a matter of time in this political environment until you are racked with scandal. And Andrew Cuomo is racked with many scandals, some of which are not paid attention to as much. For example, Andrew Cuomo did get away with literally murdering more than 10,000 seniors in New York State through his policy of sending COVID-19 positive patients to New York State nursing facilities, which are populated by majority senior citizens. And that has not gotten him as much trouble, even though there was uh, press about it late in the game. But still, he has not received as much scrutiny as he has over his, what I would call a reign of terror in the workplace, especially for women who have had the misfortune of having to work under him. So I just want to pull up. I'm not going to do it. Um, I haven't shared a screen, but I'm going to try uh, because I think it's important. Uh, there was. Hold on one second. There was good coverage of this. I'm just going to pull it up. Breaking the news. Because Andrew Cuomo right now is trending on Twitter. Uh, and I want to pull up the um, the news. Now I'm having a hard time finding it about the report. So hold on one second as I find that. Okay, let's see. There is a lot of commentary now on Andrew Cuomo because he is trending. So I'm trying to find the breaking news about it. Essentially, what Andrew Cuomo has done is he has completely and utterly disrespected his aides. He has been he has committed sexual assault numerous times. With uh, against aides who have um, worked underneath him, and okay, 
let's see if I can find. So de Blasio has called on. So I'm going to try to share this screen because de Blasio has called on Mayor de Blasio, who's also a capitalist politician who serves the capitalist class here in New York. Let, let me try to share this screen and see if this works here. I have not tried this yet. So let me see if I can do this. Um, da, 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 da. Okay, here we go. Um, I want to share this one. Okay, let's see. Can you see? Can you see that all? I hope you're all able to see that. Um, okay, so if you're able to see that, great. Let me see. Okay, so I'm just gonna read from this. Uh, I want to actually zoom in a bit. Um, if I can. Okay. So Mayor Bill de Blasio is again calling on Andrew Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo, to step down Tuesday following bombshell findings of Attorney General Tish James's probe, which he called disqualifying and painful to hear. The summary you just gave represents behavior that is unacceptable, unacceptable to anyone, especially in a public servant. A, uh, de Blasio said during a remote press conference, yada, yada, yada. So he's been very, so he says he's been very clear about the fact that we've, that what we've seen is disqualifying. It's very, very troubling to hear that accounting of a powerful person treating people that way. Okay. This happens all the time. First of all, if you've ever been employed, um, I don't know how, um, okay. So you want to see the title of this article. It's in the New York post. Can you see that? Um, hold on one second. Uh, de Blasio calls on Cuomo to step down after troubling AG report. So I'm just going to scroll back down. Uh, so the results of James's investigation released Tuesday morning during the mayor's regularly scheduled press briefing found Cuomo violated federal and state laws by sexually harassing multiple women and retaliated against the victims when they came forward. While he cautioned that he had not yet read the report, de Blasio said he trusted James's investigation. I definitely have faith in the attorney general that she and her team have conducted a thorough, objective investigation. And from what you're telling me, these are troubling findings. So I'm just going to click on this. So this is from March 3rd. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to exit that. In a sense, that didn't really give us a big picture of um, what Andrew Cuomo did. So I just want to, oh, here we go. Here is what I want to share. So I'm going to share this tweet because I think it's very important to just go over exactly the details of the horrendous things that he is being accused of. So I'm going to try to pull this one up as well. It's a tweet from a journalist. I want to just... Um, here we go. Let's share this now. All right, y'all. Can you see that? All right. So this is from journalist uh, Josefa Velasquez. And she says that New York gover Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed several aides, a highly anticipated report released by the AGO Tish James's office has found. 
The outside investigators hired by James's office found that Cuomo created a quote-unquote hostile work environment rife with fear and intimidation. She's quoting from uh, uh, James, who says Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women and in doing so violated federal and state laws. Investigators independently corroborated, corroborated and substantiated these facts with interviews and evidence, including contemporaneous notes and communications. The evidence will be made available to the public along with the report. Investigators interviewed 179 individuals, James said, including uh, complainants, current and former staff, state troopers, and other state workers. The investigators show the investigation shows a deeply disturbing but clear picture. Governor Cuomo, here we go, engaged in quote unwanted groping, kissing, huggings, and making inappropriate comments. The governor and his senior team took actions to retaliate against one former employee. I believe them, James says of one of the complainants. These were not isolated incidents. They were a pattern. The governor's pattern of sexually harassing behavior, uh, not limited to members of his own staff, but extended to other state employees, including state troopers. So Governor Cuomo reached under an unnamed executive assistant's blouse grabbed her breast independent investigator and clark says on others on several occasions he grabbed her butt okay so that is disturbing and i i didn't put in a warning or anything you know but this is to be expected of someone like andrew cuomo the capitalist class i hope you were able to see that tweet but uh so thank you miss velasquez for that reporting but the capitalist class is scum. So there is a real relationship between the abuse of power of wealthy elites, capitalists, at the individual level, at the level of their relations with whether it's women or some other oppressed group, their own workers, for example, that kind of abuse is rampant. And it's built in to the power relationships of capital and of the political class, which manages the affairs of capital. And that's what we're seeing with Andrew Cuomo. He, to be honest, has such a long track record of uh, serving the ruling class that this should come as no surprise. But throughout this whole pandemic, Andrew Cuomo has been lionized. He's been praised as someone whose leadership should be emulated. Well, I hope that this puts all of that to rest. And moreover, I hope that this incident doesn't cloud the fact that there is a relationship between how someone like Andrew Cuomo who uh, behaves, how he behaves and how he uses his position of power in the workplace and how he uses his position of power to enact policies which destroy the lives of many countless numbers of working class women, men, and people across the spectrum. So it's really important that we highlight this. And, you know, someone here said that they have been protesting Cuomo for years. Um, and for years, Andrew Cuomo has been a servant of the ruling class. He was the one who was trying to push Amazon in New York State. There's a huge movement to push back against the building of that headquarters. But we know that he's been at the forefront of gentrification. 
During the pandemic, Andrew Cuomo was having prisoners, prisoners who were contracting COVID-19 at enormous rates, at very high levels, dying within prisons. He was contracting labor, low-wage, what's been called slave labor into prisons to literally just bottle hand sanitizer, right? That is Andrew Cuomo in a nutshell. But it also, I think, is important to note that under Andrew Cuomo, right now what we see, I don't know if you saw the images of the flooding in New York City. Andrew Cuomo, the New York State, presides over the New York City subway system uh, and continues to be sold off. Its shares of it continue to be sold off to Wall Street. The subway system is falling apart because there is no public investment in it, despite the fact that there has been a rising cost of admission to the public transit system here. And that continues to be a stressor. And in this moment where millions of people are at risk of eviction, there is still an economic recession in the United States, no matter how glowingly the numbers look this summer and in over the last few months in terms of the quote unquote recovery, that's that's a myth for so many people because the vast majority of working people in New York and elsewhere are struggling very hard just to survive. And Andrew Cuomo has played a large role in reproducing the miserable conditions that exist for workers. And as someone who works with seniors, I'm a social worker by trade uh, with seniors, I witnessed firsthand multiple uh, client uh, deaths, people who have contracted COVID-19 because of this very disastrous policy of sending seniors who were hospitalized, whether they had COVID-19 or not, to nursing facilities, which were mandated to accept COVID-19 patients. And that was all to save the first, it was to, I mean, it was to provide a steady stream of patients in admissions for the rehab industry, uh, which is a huge backer of Andrew Cuomo and another monstrosity of this private for-profit healthcare system. But it also helped the hospitals, which were extremely overwhelmed due to the fact that Cuomo over the past 10 years has massively reduced the number of ICU beds, hospital beds, um, has drastically cut the public hospital system and has cut Medicaid during the pandemic, which will disproportionately affect the very same population, uh, older adults who are majority poorer than those than others. They um, they had Medicaid cut by Andrew Cuomo's so-called Medicaid redesign team, and those were passed. Still have not been implemented yet because of the. Uh, New York State emergency, but this is who Andrew Cuomo is. He is a privatizer. He's an austerity uh, champion of austerity. He is someone who is not our friend, but liberals for more than a year have literally come to tears celebrating this human dumpster fire that is the elite serving capitalist uh, politician Andrew Cuomo.
So with that said, you know, we can go down the line from his support of Medicaid cuts from his policies during COVID-19, which were disastrous. He played a lot of political, just as uh, Mayor de Blasio did, back and forth, which delayed any kind of real response to COVID-19, likely led to thousands of more deaths than needed to happen during the initial outbreak. We have his championing of Amazon. We have uh, his uh, complete backing of the for-profit healthcare system, his cuts to hospital beds, ICU beds in the tens of thousands over the past 10 years, which has led to this crisis in many respects. And now we have Andrew Cuomo being exposed. And this is not new, right? Uh, Over the past year, there have been many allegations coming out of Andrew Cuomo's sexual harassment during this uh, hashtag MeToo moment. And now we are seeing the evidence come out in full force from the New York Attorney General's office. And we need to continue to oppose and expose and continue to build alternatives to the Democratic Party because Andrew Cuomo is the face of the Democratic Party. And for a long time, before these scandals racked him, he was seen as the new darling of the Democratic Party. Book deals and constant attention on corporate media for his so-called leadership of COVID-19 and even presidential aspirations being murmured through the corporate media and the press. Now that's gone away to a large degree because of these scandals, but let us not have any reservations or believe that somehow this means that Andrew Cuomo will just resign and go away because he hasn't yet. And we know through the success of Joe Biden's last presidential campaign here in 2020 that the ruling class protects their own with the ferocity that is underestimated, I think, by the left. So with that said, I don't want to spend too much more time on Andrew Cuomo because personally, I despise the guy and I think that there's something a little more interesting to talk about. But please like this stream as you're here. Please uh, ensure that you're boosting the algorithm by liking, by sharing, by subscribing. And of course, if you can subscribe to my Patreon, that helps continue this journalism. So I wanted to talk about something. I just wrote up a quick op-ed. I've been very fascinated uh, by uh, Max Blumenthal's coverage and other journalists who are covering the eviction moratorium, so-called occupation happening on the steps of the Capitol building. I made some comments on social media myself. I wanted to... You know, eventually I would love to speak to Max Blumenthal about this. I did not have time today because technically I'm still on the clock and didn't have time to arrange that. But I would love to talk to Max as soon as possible about this as things develop. Uh, With that said, though, I wanted to make some comments about it because I just submitted a piece that I hope will be published soon today, if not tomorrow, regarding what I call a spectacle. And I I talk about the squad, for example. Um, I've commented on the squad. I've been very critical of the squad. And some people have problems with that. Look, the squad is supported by millions of left-leaning young people like myself. Now, most of these young 
left-leaning people are not self-identified Marxists or communists like myself or revolutionaries, right? They don't necessarily identify with that political leaning. But nonetheless, I'm talking about millions of millennials who are left-leaning, who are exploring socialism. And we have to be very clear about that, that that is true. Now, we also have to be very, very clear that just because they exist and just because they're supported by millions of young left-leaning people doesn't mean that they are somehow, uh, how should I say, immune from criticism. Glenn Ford, the great Glenn Ford, right? One of my mentors and Black Agenda Report as a whole. We have been very clear that the politics of diversity does not necessarily mean representation, right? We have covered for a long time the Congressional Black Caucus, Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, all of these political figures that supposedly look like us as oppressed peoples, right? Whether we're talking about the Black community or anyone else, look like us, they talk like us. But that doesn't necessarily mean they serve our interests. And so we have to be very clear about this and then look with uh, an objective analysis, where does the squad fit in? So I argue that the rise of the squad, which comes out of two terms of the Obama administration, the Obama era, which led to an unprecedented expansion of presidential war powers and a broad policy agenda that served the rich, an exacerbation of many of the Bush administration's policies, both domestic and foreign. We can go on and on. Growing people, you know, the number of people in poverty grew. The number of people in crippling debt grew. Uh, The bailouts to the banks grew. The number of wars was expanded that the U.S. was actively engaged in from two to seven. And then you had the theater of war expanded to the African continent. You had the mass surveillance system of the United States expanded, whistleblowers detained in record number. I could go on and on and on about how the Obama administration served capital, served the powerful, and served the elite to a degree much greater than his predecessor and his predecessors, right? But because the Obama administration was touted as the successful product of the civil rights movement, the black power movement, because he was branded as someone who represented the interests of black people, despite openly chastising them, go see his 2008 speech at um, Morehouse College on Father's Day, and you will see someone who had great disdain for black people. But nonetheless, he benefited in the ruling class and the U.S. imperialist system, the capitalist system. They all benefited from Obama's ability to be a more effective evil and serve their interests. Now, the squad, I argue, mixes the politics of diversity, which Obama harnessed, and the politics of spectacle, because the squad is supported not only by a lot of Democrats, but also by young left-leaning people like myself, as I said, 
people who look like me, talk like me, who embrace Bernie Sanders' economic agenda. There are millions of young people, millennials especially, who fervently support the squad, AOC, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, etc. Now, with that support comes the need to not just talk the talk, not just claim that you support this agenda, but also to quote unquote, walk the walk. So there's been a lot of spectacle, I argue, not necessarily the actions that we need to move things forward, but a lot of spectacle around uh, the squad's political activity. And so we see here now, the eviction moratorium has expired. Everyone in the political establishment from the squad to the Biden administration, to Nancy Pelosi, the entire Democratic Party, which holds a slim but still a majority in Congress, they allowed the eviction moratorium to expire and have continuously cited the Supreme Court's order back in June saying, oh, we, we needed Congress to come together around this and then blame the Biden administration for not responding to that with the statement saying, okay, now Congress go argue for it. There's a lot of shifting of blame going around all over the place regarding this issue of what happened to the eviction moratorium. And so, you know, on the eve of its expiration, you had Cory Bush go to the steps of the Capitol, say, I'm going to sleep here and I'm going to demand that Congress comes back and that this protest is meant to get what we need, which is the eviction moratorium renewed. And this isn't about, she said it to Max Blumenthal straight up, this isn't about Nancy Pelosi. She didn't know why the Biden administration didn't uh, didn't issue an executive order just to renew the thing so this could all be avoided. But she then goes to the Capitol building and there have been uh, squad leaders from AOC, Ayanna Presley, Cori Bush, of course, leading the effort. Now you have Adam Schiff as Max Blumenthal. You can go to his Twitter and look at uh, his confrontation of Adam Schiff, which, uh, you know, much power to Max for doing that. He, you know, he exposed and he continues to expose through his journalism how the squad is really avoiding a lot of questions. They're avoiding questions on what took them so long. They're claiming Cori Bush, you know, et cetera, the squad is claiming that they sent a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and to the Biden administration and that this is creating a stir and that they're doing what needs to be done, that they're confronting uh, the powerful to get what they want rather than just being nice to them. Well, if you look closely at the coverage of these demonstrations, you will notice that the attendance is very low. I mean, I'm a part of what's often called the quote-unquote far left, the radical left. And I've been to many protests myself. And I can say that we struggle to get people out to protest. It is difficult. But I can say that all the protests I've been to of late, whether it was on May Day or whether it was at the uh, rallies regarding the siege of Gaza, they've all been more highly attended than this one. And as Max and others have commented, it looks like most of the supporters, most of those who have come to the protests are merely supporters within the political network of 
AOC, Cory Bush, and the like. And that should be troubling considering that their political network is actually quite large. So if they were very serious about not only the eviction moratorium, but also much needed demands, as my uh, friend Lee Camp, journalist and friend Lee Camp said, much needed demands like housing for all, uh, they would be championing those too, but they're not. And even, and I've seen coverage of this, Corey Bush and others have told uh, protesters, those who are at the Capitol building right now, that they can only talk about the eviction moratorium issue here. That explains why Adam Schiff is there, because the eviction moratorium, right, that's something that is easy to get a photo op around. Housing for all, not so easy for those like Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi who are in the pockets who are bought off and sold to the highest bidder, the banks. So with this eviction moratorium protest, it, it's quite clear that this is spectacle, right? Because if it was not spectacle, AOC, and we've been talking about this, I know, I know Jimmy Dore and others have been talking about this, AOC and the squad, if they were truly who they say they were, organizers, activists, right? I'm an activist. I'm an organizer. I'm a shop steward. I understand these things. If you truly are that, then you do an analysis of power. And considering that their entire existence within Congress is based on the support of millions of people, then they would use that leverage, even in their tiny numbers, to force demands upon their colleagues and, and themselves, quite frankly, such as reinstating the eviction moratorium, such as filling the 17 million vacant homes that exist in the United States so everyone can have housing, including those who are homeless and houseless, regardless of if this moratorium exists or not. And also push things like Medicare for all in the so-called agenda that they embrace. Now, they didn't support force the vote, right? Because that was Jimmy Dore's thing and Jimmy Dore's uh, anathema to them. And they can't be associated with Jimmy Dore, even though there were plenty of others, including myself, who supported that effort. Even um, if it seemed simple, even if it wasn't so difficult, it was just doing something that's very basic and, and very politics 101, as others have said, which is if you have any leverage, if you have any power to make demands on power, then you do it. And there was an opportunity to withhold the speaker vote, to withhold support for Nancy Pelosi and get a vote for Medicare for all on the House floor. And people say, oh, that wouldn't have gotten Medicare for all. You would have just confirmed all the rejections. And there's been so many excuses. But politics is not just about the nuts and bolts of how Congress works or how institutions of power work. Institutions of power are designed. They are designed to thwart the interests of working class people. The capitalist state, the imperialist state, the U.S. state is designed to maintain and reproduce the oppression of one class or uh, of one class over another and uh, many classes who are exploited under this system, whether we're talking about workers, poor people, etc. That is what the state is designed to do. But then how do you enact massive social transformation that we need in a period 
of crisis? Well, you have to confront power. You have to do what is in our means to move the masses to a situation of confrontation that is winnable. And my argument about the squad is that they are now holding captive, just as the Democratic Party as a whole holds the entire left captive. The squad is holding their even further left-leaning base captive from being able to take the necessary action to enact, to, to first of all make, and then attempt to materialize the demands that we all need and that majority support. Majority support Medicare for all, majority support a Green New Deal, majority support a minimum wage, a majorities which for sure support a reduction, a massive reduction in the military budget if it were a priority, but the squad does not make that a priority, even if they do occasionally vote no on increasing the military budget, they for sure do not make it a priority. And more problematically, they also support a lot of the State Department's racist and imperialist narratives against countries that are targeted by unilateral coercive measures, whether it's sanctions against Venezuela or whether it's the military intervention and sanctions against Syria, the squad is not actively opposing those things. In fact, they passively support the narratives which justifies those policies, which justify those policies. So this is important to talk about. I mean, this is important to discuss. We can't ignore this spectacle that's happening on the Capitol building, right? They say it's slowly gaining momentum. But the eviction moratorium, that's a crisis that's happening now. How do you roll back? Anyone who understands capitalist bureaucracy, anyone who understands what it's like to be within that, and I know what it's like to be within that in relation, whether it's housing or healthcare. When policies change like this, the expiration of the eviction moratorium, what do you think landlords are doing? What do you think these real estate developers are doing? They are moving fast to recoup their losses they're getting a rubber stamp to do so. And just like any change or any contradiction under a social system that is predicated on exploitation, it is difficult to roll that back, right? There's a reason why austerity has been permanent in a lot of ways for the last 40 years. And that's because there is no appetite to roll it back for many different reasons that we can, of course, get into another time, uh, which could be its own separate stream. But anyone who understands the material life of working people, of poor people right now, of oppressed people, understands that to turn something back like an eviction moratorium is going to be very difficult. And the casualties of this will be accumulating. The casualties of this expiration will be accumulating as the struggle over this, this very uh, piecemeal and uh, photo op laden struggle continues, what really is a public relations stunt, because the Democratic Party has a reputation to maintain, right? We know here, or many of you may know, that the Democratic Party is 
faux opposition, that it's a mic resistance, right? It is a corporate dominated party that does not serve the interests of working people. And that it is actually the most more effective evil of the two party duopoly in ensuring that the reproduction of imperialism and capitalism continues and that the ruling class, Jeff, Jeff Bezos is of the world, the Warren Buffett's of the world, that they continue to get theirs. That is just so evident here where you have Adam Schiff. Someone just said in the comments, funding Israel, Max Blumenthal questioned him on about that. He said, can't we use the $4 billion a year to invest in housing for people here in the United States? And Adam Schiff ignored him. And that's because that is exactly what is happening. The United States has trillions of dollars, right? More than $750 billion now agreed upon for this year's military budget. But we know through audits, et cetera, that there are trillions of dollars that go to the Pentagon for the war machine to terrorize countries all over the world. The U.S. has 800 military bases, has Africa, the U.S. African Command and 52 or 53 African nations. Uh, we know just how devastating the U.S. invasion of Iraq was and the continued um, de facto occupation of Iraq and Syria, the interventions there, the sanctions on Iran. We can go on and on and on. The U.S. is terrorizing the world. That's not even to mention the 400 military bases that are surrounding China. But that's not even a question here, right? You don't hear the squad talking about that. You don't hear them talking about militarism and how the problems that face humanity today, hunger, poverty, war, climate catastrophe, could all be resolved if the US's military supremacy, if its war machine were dismantled, right? Now, of course, there are many more intricacies and complexities when we talk about, for example, the US mass incarceration state, the condition of black people, we cannot negate those situations as being both related and separate from it. But nonetheless, if the U.S. military state were dismantled, that also means that there's a huge shift politically going on that the squad right now is not a part of. It is not trying to be a part of. They right now are scrambling, just like the rest of the Democratic Party, to do in their own way what they feel is best for their brand. And I want to be wrong. I do not want to be correct about this. I would love if the millions of people who support the squad would hold their feet to the fire and say, we need more than spectacle right now. We need more than sleeping outside on the streets, which to me, I find very offensive. This notion that you can go sleep outside in the streets and that's somehow a protest. I mean, I found the hands up, don't shoot, like I'm going to die-ins. I don't know if you remember that during the Black Lives Matter protests. I found that offensive just because... I know people who have been harassed and terrorized by the police and I've had encounters with police myself. And I can say, I do not want that to be some kind of symbol of protest. It just, no, it just, I don't, it doesn't do it for me. Plus it doesn't really send the message. It's a very watered down liberal message and we don't need that. The same goes for the sleeping outside and I'm going to be like other people tonight. No, you're not. If you're in Congress, if you're a Democratic politician in Congress, you are not like ordinary people. You are not 
working class. I don't care if you were of the working class, right? We have to get away from this spectacle. This is all that we are seeing. I don't care about your identity back then. I care about what you do now. And I think so many others do too. And so if you are of the millions of people who support the squad, support the squad, then there's no better thing that you can do than hold their feet to the fire and say, why aren't you confronting the Democratic Party? Why are you being mealy-mouthed about whether it's Biden's fault or Pelosi's fault? No, it's all of your fault. And you have to fess up to that. You have a slight majority and yeah, there's Republican opposition, but what stops you from taking the steps that the Republicans take? We've been asking this question at Black Agenda Report for a long time. The Democrats are not willing to disrupt their corporate donor class. They're not willing to disrupt their own election electoral advantages in the metropolitan areas of this country that speak to a lot of election fraud as well. So they allow the Republicans to do things that they just won't do. Because if they ended up in some sort of literal competition among them on critical issues, it opens up a can of worms and it means that the Democratic Party then has to be accountable to what they do. Because if they took actions, if they did the filibustering, if they um, used their leverage at the time when it counted, then they would have to do that on every single issue. And I hope that this makes sense. Okay. Um, Okay, we got a little troll here. That's cool. You know, everyone's welcome. Um, But keep my dad out of your mouth. Uh, Mr. Armstrong or Mrs. I don't really care who you are. Peace out. Um, because yeah, no, don't talk about people's parents on my stream. I'm sorry. You, you're not going to get any love from me. You're going to go bye-bye. Um, so anyway, I don't have much more to say other than that, because this is a real, for me, of course, I'm an I'm an analyst. I'm you know I make commentary. I try to do so from a revolutionary perspective, and I think there's a way to go about this, right? We that we do have to be critical of the squad. We do have to make you know understand that the Democratic Party doesn't matter how left leaning you are within it. That just means that you're tolerated within the establishment. And I think we have to start getting this through. However, whatever means and strategies we take to get the point across, you know, we should debate. But we cannot debate that simple fact that the Democratic Party is showing, whether it's Andrew Cuomo's sexual assault scandal, his pro-corporate agenda, the ways in which he has made the life of so many millions of working class people harder over the course of this pandemic, or whether we're talking about the squad's politics of spectacle, which combined with the politics of diversity create a very difficult barrier for the left to challenge what is right now the biggest impediment to the left, and that is the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is on the front lines of creating all of the obstacles to Medicare for all, to peace, to a new socialist society, they are the first line of defense. The Republicans, everyone on the left knows. Most working class people know. The Republicans don't have a huge working class base. Of course, they have a section of white workers who 
have for a long time, arguably since the origins of the United States, been encapsulated in this racist nightmare that the United States is. And they support the Republican Party's ongoing support for that legacy in the modern era. Okay. But the majority of working class people, especially those who have been the most revolutionary forces in the United States, Black America, uh, the working class in the metropolitan areas, in the industrial heartlands, they mostly support Democrats. And most of the unions are Democratic Party, at this point, operatives of the Democratic Party, the AFL-CIO unions, for the most part. So give money away to the Democrats, help them elect politicians from the local to the federal level. And that means that majorities of their members support Democrats for the most part, right? Albeit there are a few exceptions. So the Democratic Party is really in the way, right? They are the biggest obstacle to what I asked, right? I asked on Twitter, what would overthrowing imperialism and capitalism mean to you and your family? They are in the way of us being able to really answer both the how, how do you overthrow these systems? And then what would it mean to us? They're in the way of us having those conversations in a real organized and mass way, because there are many who still believe that the Democratic Party is the lesser of two evils and that they must be supported at all costs from the Republicans, the squad is only helping that in many ways. I mean, how many examples do we have to give from forced to vote to calling to AOC, calling Nancy Pelosi, the 100 millionaire who, mind you, is supported by many real estate moguls and in, in the real estate industry which is at the forefront of getting rid of this eviction moratorium. But, you know, she's the mama bear of the Democratic Party, according to AOC. And, you know, the, the squad always champions their relationship with her as some sort of chip of credibility, right? That this makes them credible, that they are supported by uh, or supported, right? <laughs> That's a funny, funny way of putting it since Nancy Pelosi has made numerous comments and has made it quite clear that she is wholly against the squad and sees them as a an aberration as something that can barely be tolerated within congress but uh, here we are we have this contradiction of the corporate democrats want to see the squad fail and want to see the whole entire what glenn ford called the sandernista movement right they want to see it all fail and they they want to make sure that it's as marginal as possible. But yet you have the Sandernista movement uh, as represented by the squad constantly trying to negotiate a more favorable position with their own enemies. Right. And what does that eventually lead? Well, it leads to these moments of spectacle rather than real genuine protests. I don't believe for one second that Cory Bush and AOC and others couldn't have gotten millions of people, if not hundreds of thousands to the Capitol building with emails, with just a few emails, right? Saying, come, we're going to demand the eviction moratorium be renewed, and we're going to demand housing for all, and we're going to then afterward place our entire agenda on the table during a pandemic and economic crisis, and we're going to write a bill 
you're going to support it and you're going to rally for as long as it takes to get Joe Biden and the Democrats to support it. That's possible. Of course, it may damage their long-term political careers, but at the same time, it's possible in the abstract, in the concrete material world, the analysis of, well, what is the Democratic Party's function, who and what does the Democratic Party serve, then becomes the primary question. Because it's not happening, it will not happen, and it will be up to us here in the belly of the beast to begin to develop the new institutions, new organizations, the mass organizations, the political parties, we need to have these conversations of building these free of the Democratic Party, independent of the Democratic Party. And there are some e efforts um, out there that are trying to do just that. But they're still marginalized, despite the fact that more than 60% of the electorate, the electorate is more conservative than the general population, but the electorate, those who vote regularly, Democrat, Republican, they're ready for a third party in the majority. Yet we're still talking about whether to support the squad, to protect them, don't criticize them. They're doing the right thing. They're on the level. They're not frauds, right? There's all these debates, which I find to be pretty useless in the sense that they lag behind the moment, both the moment of crisis that working people are facing, as well as the fact that people's consciousness right now is actually ahead of where... Uh, these movements, these so-called movements are. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about this. I didn't want to, I, I don't have too much longer to go. So, you know, if you're here, make sure that you've liked the stream, that you've, uh, you know, subscribed to The Left Lens because, um, we need help with that algorithm because it's a slow go of it on YouTube. They're not, not very generous to those of us on the genuine left, the real left. Um, if you can subscribe to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Fong helps keep things like this going. I'm actually in the middle of a move still. It's a very slow move. So just on a personal side, I've got things and like, we got things in two places in New York. Uh, we have, things in Massachusetts where I originally was that's been there for four years and we're going overnight tomorrow. It's going to be kind of a hellish next two days. So I wanted to get on here and make my comments. Uh, my, the publication of my article should be coming out soon that I wrote on this, just a quick thousand word reaction to the spectacle that's happening at the Capitol building. Uh, in lieu of the great journalism done by Chuck Modi, speaking to AOC, great journalism done by Max Blumenthal, who continues to go out there and give you all firsthand look, uh, especially on Twitter, of what's happening at the occupation of the Capitol building in response to the expiration of the eviction moratorium. So the consequences of this are dire. The numbers are real. 11 million people are at risk of homelessness. I know that the courts are now filling up. Evictions are being filed. And without a, without a renewal of this policy, they will go through. Uh, I, I don't know how the eviction courts are going to be able to handle this with the pandemic. There's probably going to be a huge backlog. And maybe that will help. Maybe that will hurt people. 
uh, it's unclear. But at the end of the day, what you have is still here in New York City, unemployment's upwards of 10% officially, right? And that's always lower than generally. So that is really where we're at. The capitalist system is in crisis. It cannot contain this pandemic. Uh, there's been interesting coverage of the Olympics. Uh, China's leading in gold medals, and some have been very critical of that. And China is, you know, a robotic country that's very anti-communist. China is just training children and abusing them. So that's why they're winning. But there's a really interesting note that was made on South China Morning Post where they said that China is not racked with COVID-19 or doping scandals at the Olympics. And that goes out to their socialist system. I mean, Japan does not have the doping scandals either. Their COVID situation, because they're in Tokyo, uh, they've been able to isolate their athletes better. But Japan's COVID-19 response has been pretty poor. And I've had people on the ground there tell me that it's just been obscured in the media because Japan is a deep ally of the United States. And very little critical ever comes out about Japan. But with China, despite having the ire of the United States constantly weighing down on them, despite being constantly criticized, condemned by the United States, uh, the attempts to isolate China, uh, the aggression militarily and politically that's been ongoing, the, the COVID-19, they've had zero cases of their athletes contracting COVID-19 despite playing in an international terrain. And they also don't have these doping scandals, which always plague the United States and the West and other countries because of the malicious ways in which athletics are used as a funnel for profits of the owning class, of the capitalist class. So with that said, you know, we're in this moment of crisis. You know, the Olympics are happening. Everyone is, I don't, I'm not enjoying them because I haven't watched one bit of it, not even the basketball. And I like the basketball. As long as the United States loses, I'm happy. But this larger moment of crisis is surrounding it here in the United States, not just the eviction moratorium, the ongoing economic crisis, the fact that issues such as mass incarceration, such as white supremacy, these things are constantly being suppressed. You have really nothing changing under Joe Biden. Joe Biden is just really picking up where his predecessor left off and, in fact, escalating things uh, from the prior Obama administration. For example, right now, DHS and other bodies, uh, Customs Border Protection, CBP, others, their ICE, they have upped deportations to a level not seen since the Obama period because local and state governments are now compliant because, hey, we got a Democratic Party administration. It is now more acceptable to deport in record numbers. There's been more than 600,000 people since June, uh, or at least as of June, uh, since the administration came on in January of this year. So this is where we're at. This is I think, an indication of the fall of the American empire, the decline of the American empire. And it is our duty to ensure that we are not virtue signaling and, and trying to stand on the side of the oppressor, regardless of how progressive they may sound or be. 
Because if you are a Democrat, I don't care what anyone says, show if you show me a Democrat, you show me the enemy. That is what they are. There's nothing that you can reform about it. And I hope that at some point, supporters of the Democratic Party in this so-called progressive camp begin to champion demands upon their own politicians so that we can have more room to talk about alternatives. Because if we have millions upon millions, the majorities of so-called left-leaning people still holding on to the hope that the Democrats will change, then in effect, the left will always be a marginal minority in the United States. And the political right, the powerful, the interests of the capitalists will never be challenged. They won't. No matter how bad it gets, it, you know, some people say it needs to get worse. I'm not of that school of thought. Things are bad. Things are bad enough, right? We have people in prison dying for political reasons. We have 2 million people in prison. We have COVID-19 killing more than a half a million people, and it will kill close to a million people by the time this thing gets under control here or just becomes a kind of common part of life and we all move on because there was never any response in the first place. We have endless austerity. We have constant talks about cuts, cuts, cuts. I'm in union negotiations right now and the employer is making soft threats about concessions and let's just extend the current contract. Well, extending a current a, a, a past contract means you're not up to date with cost of living. You're not making improvements. That's a cut. That is the environment right now for us as working class people, for the working class. And, you know, just accelerating the pain does not create the change. We need to begin to develop leadership, to develop organizations independent of the Democratic Party, which is capable of putting up this challenge, supporting each other, dues paying organizations, new workers organizations, a new political party representing the needs and interests of working people. That's what we need right now. The squad will always be a spectacle should they not be accountable to the very people that got them elected. And the only way they can even be put to that test is if a mass movement is willing to do that. And so that's why I talk about the squad not being socialists. They're not socialists. I mean, no Democrat is socialist. I don't care. Bernie Sanders, AOC, call themselves socialists. They're not. Can't be socialists in a capitalist party. Socialism is not a welfare state. It's not the New Deal. That's not the definition of socialism. Never was. In FDR, everyone's, everyone in the Democratic Party likes to champion FDR from the most corporatist to the most left. They like to say FDR is kind of the standard bearer of what the Democratic Party is all about. He did not say he was a socialist. No way did he say that. He said he was saving the capitalist class. He said he was saving capitalism when he enacted not just a new deal, but also the war spending measures, which helped bring industry up to a level of development. So I'm going to end this stream now. Like the the video patreon.com slash danny haifong you can support me share it retweet it the spectacle of the squad has to be challenged this is where we're at they're not socialists 
And that's not even the most important thing. The most important thing is to know this so we can move forward accordingly and begin to build popular power where it's most needed, at the grassroots, uh, within the labor movement, within the working class, within the prisons, within our communities. We need to build upon this mass shift in consciousness around economic demands and begin a class struggle around those. Because class struggle is not just between Jeff Bezos and the working people or Amazon and the working people or the Democrats and Republicans during elections. That's not really where class struggle always is. Class struggle always also occurs amongst each other, right? And we approach it differently. We should approach that differently than we do with our enemies. But we also have to have these debates. And I see a lot of people trying to stop that. I see a lot of TYT. We can go on and on about the nefarious forces that are trying to stop that debate from happening. And I can say that as someone who has stood against imperialism, whether it's U.S. imperialist aggression towards China, whether we're talking about U.S. imperialism anywhere abroad, whether it's talking about imperialism right here at home, the police state, the racist state, the surveillance, the political prisoners, the case of Julian Assange, the case of Daniel Hale, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, someone who believes that all political prisoners should be free and that all oppressed people domestically and abroad should be free from the terror of imperialism. We need to be clear. This debate needs to happen and we're going to continue to raise it where I don't care about the detractors, about the squad, et cetera. I'm, I care about the end result, which is a future where I do not have to worry about healthcare, education, whether there's food on the table, whether debt is being racked up to the point where I can't not only survive, but I can't even keep a sane state of mind where I don't have to worry about whether the U.S., is going to get into a nuclear confrontation abroad, whether the U.S. military is going to destroy the livelihoods and the environment of people both here and abroad, where I don't have to worry about experimentations in Fort Detrick or the fact that bombs, cluster bombs, or white phosphorus is being dropped on the Palestinian people, etc. I don't have to worry about that. That's the world I'm fighting for. That's a socialist world, a world where workers are the ones who are in power, where they're the ones who have the not only influence over the state, but also have a direct role within the state, that they are the administrators. No longer do we need capitalist uh, administrators, people who serve the capitalist class primarily and treat us as a force that needs to be managed and manipulated into tacit or explicit support for this system. That is where we are right now. And we need to do anything, whether it's the analysis, whether it's the activity, the journalism, we can do anything in our power to ensure that all sides are covered, that the issues are covered correctly, and that a revolutionary analysis is forwarded. That that's that's my role. That's my role here. 
And you know, with the death of Glenn Ford, Jesus, apologies for that noise. I'm trying to have a good conclusion to this stream. And of course, I don't know if that's the pigs or if that's an ambulance. It's probably an ambulance. Uh, but ambul all ambulances are just with the pigs too. I don't know. I I'm sure you know here. So in any event, what I'm saying is that, yeah, keep the, f keep the fire revolution burning. You know, we are on black August now. I didn't even get to talk about that. Uh, black August is the month where black people, especially black revolutionaries, George Jackson is often seen as the father of Black August. George Jackson's huge influence on me. Read Blood in My Eye. Read Soledad, brother. Read Walter Rodney's great eulogy for George Jackson, which you can find online. Uh, it's all about freedom of political prisoners, freedom of prisoners of war, many of whom are were within the Black liberation movement. But it's also about just liberation in general, right? And so it's Black August. Let's keep the spirit of revolutionary politics alive. Let's fill that gap because as you see in progressive media, there's not a lot of that here. Um, and yeah, I, I appreciate you all coming. Um, and yeah, support me, patreon.com slash Danny High Fong, support Black Agenda Report, The Left Lens, Margaret and I will come back together. We're still working out some... Um, logistics with this we also have um a tribute issue coming out on wednesday so uh just uh, be aware of that i have a tribute to glenn there and you know you can follow me on twitter you can follow me on social media you can follow me um on patreon patreon.com slash danny highfong if you can contribute but we'll be back here soon once I'm all moved, I'll probably be in a different setup. I don't know what it will look like. Still haven't even installed internet in the place. You know, uh, I'm working nine to five as I move. So it's kind of crazy. But my lunch hour is over. Um, it's well over. So I got to get back to work. Peace out, comrades. Uh, make sure you continue to support the work. Keep the revolutionary spirit alive. Take care, everyone.